We'll turn, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 will be in verses 8 through 17 today. As I conclude this series here, and as you're turning, I'll say for those who are uh, maybe visiting for the first time or the, for, for the first couple of times, I'm really finishing a series that I began back before Easter earlier in the year um, uh, called It Is Good. The series is It Is Good, um, taken out of Genesis 1 and 2 and really looking at what does God say in the beginning before sin, before the fall, before things got messed up, what did, how did he design things to be and, how, and what did he declare was good that we might um, be guided and instructed and inspired by that. And so I'm finishing that today with a message called, It is Good, the Natural Environment. And so uh, we're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 8 through 17. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I'm going to ask you if you will stand, if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's Word as we listen carefully to His voice in it. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord, made, uh, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word now as always. We open it with the belief, the conviction that every jot and tittle of it is inspired by your spirit and that it is living and active and powerful. And so we open it with expectation that you have something to say to us in it, and not just by way of information, but by way of life and life transformation. So we open ourselves to receive what you have for us and pray that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. Lord, would you move me out of the way? And help me not get in the way that you would use my voice as your instrument to communicate to us, your people today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it would be hard uh, to justify not preaching a message on this topic in a series called It Is Good, inspired by what Genesis 1 and 2 says is good. 
Uh, for, for at least two reasons, I say it would be hard to justify not including a message on this topic. Number one, because environmental concerns occupy such a great deal of our attention these days, right? And, 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 and occupy such a great deal of just a public conversation. It's a big topic all the time. And to the extent that Scripture has something to say to it, uh, then we want to know what that is. But second, and really probably more important, it, it would be because... The statement, it is good, is said far more times about creation itself in Genesis 1 and 2 than about any other single topic. That is, it applies most directly and most obvious, obviously to the creation of the natural world throughout Genesis 1. And you probably know that having read uh, Genesis before. But, it, I mean, it says... Uh, on just about every day of creation, when the light was created, it was good. The water and the land, it was good. The vegetation, it was good. The sun, sun moon, and stars, they were good. Creatures of the sea and the air, they were good. And creatures that live on the land, they were good. Everything he created, it says at the end of Genesis chapter 1, he saw all that he created, and behold, it was very good. So speaking, again, most directly to the, act, the created world, the physical world. So uh, a series like this would be incomplete without speaking to that, his creation that is. And perhaps it would be irresponsible um, to neglect and, and, and fail to acknowledge the goodness of the natural environment. And so we must say, because he says, creation is good and it is God's. Creation is good. And it is God's. It says in Psalm 24.1, in fact, I read at the outset uh, of the service from a call to worship. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell in it. It is all his. And so we want to we try to uh, examine in a, in a fairly concise uh, fashion how the Bible, particularly the beginning of the Bible in God's uh, good creation, how the Bible frames the subject um, of the created world, the natural world, and uh, how we are to be concerned about it and engage with it and so on and so forth. I sent out a little bit of a teaser uh, or whatever, uh, uh, an introduction in the, in the newsletter, as I uh, most often do, just to, in teeing up this subject and uh, pointed out, once again, as is so often the case, that when it comes to matters of public interest, uh, issues that are part of the public discourse and conversation, uh, the, the, the discussion tends to be framed by two political parties, right? There's the, there's the Republican version and there's the Democratic version of how we talk about um, those issues. And um, I, I offered what I think was actually a fair, um, if not a summary of the platforms, I think I characterized the platform positions in, in that newsletter uh, of each one of those parties in order to really hint at the fact that I don't think either one of those addresses it adequately. So the, the point is, to the extent that, um, that, that issues like this are framed for us, by political interest, I don't think they framed it adequately, and I don't think the people of God ought to accept that. I don't think we ought to let somebody else 
define the narratives for us and to define what is good and right and true and so forth, we ought to be the ones um, framing those issues for the public and in the public interest. So in in large part, this message this morning uh, pulls together some principles that we've uncovered along the way. And this this is mostly a synthesis of things that we've already uh, discussed. And in fact, that's part of what makes it a good culminating message here. Um, There's one, I guess, new observation to make here along the way. But I want to try to offer as succinctly as I can um, some guiding principles for thinking about in, uh, environmental concerns. And that is to, to, to share uh, not really what to think, but hopefully a little bit about how to think about these issues. What would be the principles that would guide us in thinking about these issues? And so I've I've, I've headed this on these uh, slides that I have, environmental checks and balances, because I think they are four principles in the opening chapters of Genesis that are right there for us. And I think when you put these together, they, they sort of keep uh, each other in check and balance one another a little bit. In a way that I might say is like, I, I think of the picture of, um, uh, of a tarp. If you've seen some of these sunshade kind of tarps that, uh, that, that are put over a picnic table or a playground or something like that that just provide a little bit of cover, a little bit of shade and whatever. And they can be held in place just by pulling tension on each of the four corners, right? You've seen that, seen ropes or bungee cords or something like that that just pulls tension into the tarp and, and by doing so creates the sort of coverage that is needed there. I think of that sort of picture in the sense that there are four principles here that sort of pull uh, tension against one another and provide for us a measure of cover over these issues as a result. And so the first of those, what I'm going to do is really just try to summarize what those four principles are and then go back, circle back around and talk just briefly about how they could be applied. I will tell you this is one of those messages there is So much that could be said, books would be more helpful than sermons, and short would be better than long. I know you want to say amen just out of courtesy to me. You're not going to because you think that's always the case. But but I I am trying to say concisely and succinctly uh, what's essential to say here, knowing there's so much else about so many other questions that would arise from that. But I'm going to lay out what the principles are and then circle back around and just talk about some examples of how that might be applied. But the first principle that I think needs to be brought to bear in environmental discussions is the issue of human dignity. The principle that as image bearers of God, Human beings are special. The crowning act of God's creation that the Bible would say to us and for us, people are not just another animal. That people are created beings. We are part of creation, but we are not just like any other part of creation. Human beings are special in his sight and we ought to regard humans as special. We, we have a regard for human life that 
uh, supersedes our regard for any other kind of life. And as I think I acknowledge when we were going through that topic on, on that particular week of that sermon, that's, uh, that's a controversial thing to say this day, day and age. Who are you? That's speciesism. I think humans are you know, special in that way. That's exactly the way the Bible treats it. And so it's one of the things that it's usually not part of this conversation at all. When you're talking about environmental concerns, um, it's, people don't even think of that as being relevant, but it becomes relevant uh, at certain points. So that this principle of human dignity, of, 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 of life as sacred and worthy of special care and concern, that would be one of the principles. The second is stewardship. These would be ones, if you've thought about this at all, you kind of, this would be the one that you would think of. But in verse 15 that we just read, and you remember from the sermon, you, I'm just, I have confidence that you remember from that sermon on work and productivity some weeks ago when we went through this passage before, that um, part of man's charge, when God put him in the garden, it says, part of what he was supposed to do was to keep the garden, that is to guard it, to watch over it. There was, a, there was a protecting and a preserving sort of role, a caretaking role that was man's charge in the garden. The same word there that's used in Psalm 121 where it says that um, the Lord will keep you. And it uses that word keep over and over and over, God's protection of his people And that same word is applied to man's charge, Adam's charge, to keep the garden. God did not give man the garden. He gave man responsibility for the garden. And there was much, and there is much, for us to enjoy about the creation that God has given us. In fact, we read here about he he gave all these trees that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. It's, it's good and it is to be enjoyed. But it is also ours to exercise responsibility for, to steward that one of man's responsibilities regarding the natural environment is stewarding it. Um, this world is not ours to do with whatever we want to do. It is ours to do responsibly with what is honoring to God and pleasing to God for his good purposes and pleasure. We're stewards, not owners. The third principle would be productivity or um, industry. In the messages on work, I, I, I think I titled them work and productivity, or at least that was the sort of topical heading Productivity. Adam was responsible not only to keep the garden, but to work it. We see that man was given work to do as part of what we call the first commission or the cultural commission, where he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And, And as part of the sort of outworking of that, he was given work to do. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't sin yet. It wasn't Uh, it it wasn't a necessary evil in the beginning of creation. It was part of God's good plan for man and and something to delight in. And you remember, perhaps, that the earth was created with latent potential. It said in one of the earlier verses of uh, Genesis 2, um, 
that uh, no, no small plant of the field had sprung up yet for the Lord had not caused it to rain and there was no man to work the ground. There was potential that the earth had, God's creation, had potential that had not uh, yet manifest. And part of the reason was man hadn't been created to work it yet. There was, there was potential in the earth that was to be realized by the effort and ingenuity of human beings. That, that is, we're meant to be productive, not just busy. We're meant to be productive. Productivity is good. Because the earth was created not only with potential, but also just with kind of inherently, intrinsically great wealth. Uh, Speaking of the four rivers that uh, flowed out of Eden, And the regions associated with those rivers, you may have noticed, or maybe not, in verse 12, speaking of Havilah, this place, nobody knows exactly where that is. But that there was gold there, and verse 12 says, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. So that is the periphery of the garden, one of the areas sort of bounding the garden is just decorated with gold and jewelry. It's almost a picture of what you see in heaven, of the, the, the gates and walls and this kind of thing, just bejeweled. And so in the beginning, it was, it was created that way, sort of the boundaries of the garden. The gold of the land is good. I was really struck by this on this particular uh, reading. I've read, I've read uh, Genesis 1 and 2, I don't know how many times, but because I was making note of all the times it said it is good, This caught my attention. The gold of the land is good. Now, I didn't know there was any bad gold. um, But if you have some just cluttering up your house, any of that bad gold, and you just need to get it off your hands, I'll see what I can. uh, You bring it to me, I'll find some place to to put it. But but the point there is to say, you know, God's, God's creation is just uh, decked out with wealth, prosperity. It's, a, it's good. Now, don't we know all the kinds of ways, especially after the entry of sin into the world, all the kind of ways where it can be not good, right? All the ways that we can pursue it to excess, all the ways that, Wealth can be misused and so on and so forth. But it is good. And that pushes back against one of the uh, claims of many in contemporary culture, you know, essentially that there's something inherently evil about wealth or people who are wealthy. That's part of God's good design. Just decked out with prosperity. But, but, But our part in that as human beings is, is being productive, that is working and, and bringing forth yields, if you will, from the potential of the earth. And that's one of the principles that has to be brought into the conversation about environmental care. We'll talk about why or how in just a minute. The fourth principle, though, is contentment. Contentment. Human dignity, stewardship, productivity, and contentment. 
Again, this is an intriguing truth here that this is present in this creation narrative. But it says in verses 16 and 17, uh, what we are all, one of the things we know, if you know the creation account and you know about the fall of man, you know about verses 16 and 17 that says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, let's just pause and think about the implication of this for just a minute. Because the garden was surrounded by gold and jewels. It's filled with every good tree that's good for food and pleasant to the sight. Right? There's just all kinds of pleasantness and abundance around. Goodness abounded. There wasn't any sin. And yet, the inhabitants of the garden were not free to eat of anything they wanted. There was one tree particularly. He said, you can't have that one. There's all this other good stuff. It's pleasant to look at. It's good for food. You can eat of any of it, but not this one. Not because of any sin Although it would be the source of their first sin, wouldn't it be? But again, that wasn't punishment. It wasn't God being mean and not letting them have, you know, cookies before dinner or whatever. But in God's good creation, part of man's charge and responsibility was to be content. That's actually, again, to me, uh, a, a really intriguing thought because you could say, in a certain respect, the original sin was partly a sin of discontentment. It was a sin of disobedience, right? They just did what God said don't do. But part of what produced that sin was discontentment. The refusal... To be satisfied with all the abundance that they already had. But to want the one thing that they were told they can't have. Matthew Henry, a Puritan uh, pastor, commentator, in in his commentary on Genesis, said uh, this about this passage. God as a tender father desired not only Adam's profit, but his pleasure. That's what it was given to him in creation. Not only his profit, but his pleasure. But lust craves everything and is content with nothing. Lust craves everything and is content with nothing. There is uh, so much freedom and joy to be found in Contentment, and we get that message repeatedly in the New Testament as well. But it is, again, uh, that, that's really one of the principles we didn't so much unpack throughout this series, but becomes critical, I believe, not only in, in sort of rounding out the whole picture of what we're told about God's good creation, but also in bringing that to bear on the subject of environmental care and environmental interests and so forth. 
So I want to talk just a few minutes here about how that, how that might be applied because these need to be held in tension. We need to be asking ourselves, in other words, not just questions about what, is it, what does it mean to take care of God's earth on this particular issue, but what does it mean to steward? And what does it mean specifically to uh, represent the interests, the special interests of human beings, um, the interests of being productive, and at the same time, the need to be content. So w- concerning the, uh, just the principle of human dignity and how, how that's applied in this particular situation, again, there's, there's a thousand times more that I'm not going to say uh, than there is what I, what I am going to say in countless ways, I suppose, that it could be applied. But, but the question would be, let's say on any particular issue at hand, any particular issue being discussed about the environment, if we were to take action, or if we were to choose not to take action, how will human beings be affected? That's the question. Again, a particular question. It's not just generally what's the impact of this, but how does this impact people? And for example, um, if farmland that has been used to produce food is uh, converted or maybe proposed to be converted, to solar farms or biofuels, something in other words, land, a lot of land is going to be used now for some other purpose besides food production. How does that impact people? You follow the question or the train of thought there. That's just one of the, that's the kind of question that has to be asked. If we do this, what is the impact on people? I am, that is not to say, by the way, I, I'm not uh, suggesting that either solar farms or biofuels are bad. But, it, but, but there is an exchange that is made in the way land is used. And if it's trading uh, food production for some alternative use, is there enough food um, for the people that have been fed by that food supply before? I might mention um, now, because I don't think I made a, a note of my, to, for myself to, to mention it other place, places. Yeah, there, there is actively a discussion kind of along those lines uh, about in different places that um, there needs to be a plan or policies in place to reduce the use of nitrogen fertilizers because of their environmental impact in a variety of ways. And others are saying we can't produce enough food to feed the world without nitrogen fertilizers. Now, you might not be surprised to know, I don't know how much nitrogen fertilizer it takes. I'm thankful there are people making sure I'm fed. That's a thank you, Lord, and to all the farmers who are doing that. Like, I don't know, um, you know, the ins and outs of that, but, but that, that's an example of If you only look at one side of the issue, you'll neglect to ask really important questions about another side of the issue. And so that's one of the, that's an illustration of what it might look like to kind of bring the interest of human, particularly human care and concern to the discussion of environmental issues. On the the, uh, issue of stewardship or the principle of stewardship, 
might just ask things like, are the earth and its resources being used in a way that honors God and is pleasing to him? That benefits the general population as much as possible, that's preserved for future generations to use, right? Conservation, resource management, um, and so on and so forth. Those, those kinds of questions. I would say, by the way, is this pleasing to the Lord is a good question for you and I to ask about all kinds of other things in life. I remember hearing uh, somebody who uh, came to a church that I used to be a part of doing a, a, a capital fundraising campaign, and they were consultants on that sort of effort, raising a lot, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for a big building campaign. And uh, the guy, this was a Christian organization, but he said um, he wouldn't ever go in and tell somebody who he knew had the capacity to give a lot of money. He wouldn't tell them. He wouldn't even make a suggestion of how much to give, mainly because he might aim too low. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that was probably part of, the, part of the issue. But he would say to them, you do what pleases the Lord. And he said sometimes that would frustrate people because they, they actually wanted him, uh, wanted, wanted, wanted him to answer the question for them. You do what pleases the Lord. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Uh, is this decision I'm, I'm making about any number of things, is, is this pleasing to the Lord? But as it relates to um, all kinds of just stewardship matters, is, is the decision I'm considering or that we're considering, that I'm being asked to vote in favor of or against or whatever, what's pleasing to the Lord and what honors him? Because this is his. It's, it's good, but it's his. What would please him in the way we exercise that? We might also ask as stewards, to what extent does the proposed solution actually solve the problem? That question doesn't get asked enough either. Because sometimes it sounds like the virtuous thing to be doing or talking about, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. Uh, much less does it create bigger problems in the process. Those are, those are questions that we could ask as stewards. But the third uh, principle is the one of productivity. And again, that is just to say we're talking about working and producing, being, being prosperous and productive with uh, the abilities we have, the time that we have, the resources we have, and so forth. And so uh, part of that principle would just be that to acknowledge, to affirm that economic growth and development are good things, not bad. It is part of God's design for us to be productive and prosperous. And I say that with some emphasis because I know it's true in so many circles now. You, you, would, you would hear the opposite, uh, you know, uh, people of wealth and means and, uh, and so forth are um, sort of demonized. And some of them probably deservedly so because there are plenty of people who do bad things with however much money they have, right? But economic growth and development are good things, not, not without limits. Um, but we need to hold this out as one of our interests. It is good for us, not just for the good of the business owner, uh, f for instance. Here's an, a concrete example, again, that may help sort of put some feet on this. 
If a new factory is being built in town or being proposed to be built in town, it will produce not only something of value that was not being produced before, it will employ people, right, with jobs that didn't exist before. Um, it, will, it will sort of expand the, the market of job opportunities and uh, that um, income produced and not only for the company but for its employees gets poured into a local economy. It, that's good for the whole community. Again, it's not absolutely good, right? Do you, are you tracking with me on that? You understand? Um, it, it, it can be bad in all kinds of ways, but what I'm saying is um, that there is something good about not just in principle or in concept about productivity, about prosperity, and so forth. And it's not just about the ones uh, producing that or receiving that most directly. It ends up being good for everybody. In fact, those who were here last year, I am moving on, by the way. But those who were here um, last year when I did a series at the beginning of the year, I shared some uh, statistics or graphics that showed over a period of time, really since 1960 or so, how around the world, um, the world has gotten, much of the world has gotten more prosperous and life expectancies have increased too. The quality of life has increased as GDP per capita increased. Uh, I'd, sorry, I did not mean to say something that technical. Um, but, but the point is that it, this isn't just there, there's, there's proof in the pudding here. Life, life gets better for people. It lifts, but prosperity lifts people out of poverty. But again, that's not absolute. Uh, in fact, that really is the final point. Is that the fourth principle that pulls hard against some of these others is contentment. And I think we need to think of, we need to try to think about what is this, how does this apply, or what does this look like uh, on a corporate level or on a societal level, and not just not just me being content with what I have, but how how should we consider how we are to be content with what we have? More specifically, at what point should we just say no to the next development project that's proposed? Because there will be ones, in fact, there's probably ones on the, on the sort of drawing board right now or ones in actively in conversation. I'm not really, there aren't, aren't uh, ones coming to mind. But there will be development projects that have environmental implications and there will be people opposed to that development project for environmental reasons. And there will be others arguing in favor of the project because of the jobs that it will produce the income that will be uh, produced from that, the tax base and how that will be increased. And part of what I'm suggesting to you is there will always be that argument. When I say always, I mean always. I mean not will there ever be a time when it won't be the case that somebody will be making the case in favor of the initiative because of jobs that are being produced. And that's not the whole story. And I've just spent some time saying productivity and prosperity are good things, right? Economic growth are good things. But there's a point at which uh, collectively we have to decide to be content 
with what we have because of the cost in other ways. Again, I would say uh, maybe a couple of four instances. I don't know that it's ever actually been proposed. I'm sure somebody's uh, looked at if there was a way they could do it. But you know, Masonboro Island could have a lot of condominiums on it. And I promise you, there'd be somebody willing to build them. Right? And there'd be people willing to buy them. And there would be, there would be jobs for all that construction project. There might be new jobs because there's a ferry service that's going to go over to Masonboro Island or whatever the case may be. You can, you can imagine that hypothetical scenario. But is it worth it? Well, I'm not asking you to actually answer that question because it's a made-up uh, made proposal. We don't even know the particulars of it. But, it's, but, but, the, but at what point do we have to say, no, we're content. We have to be content with what we have because the cost, even in non-monetary ways, of certain uh, projects is more than we could be willing to pay. We, could, we don't even have to think of made-up ones. There have been proposals that have been deba debated about factories to be built right on the northeast Cape Fear River or that were built some decades ago further up the Cape Fear River that dumped Gen X into the water that now we all know what Gen X is because that had to become our issue, right? And whether that's in our drinking water or not, uh, I mean, I, wanna, I shouldn't even have opened up that can of worms. But the point is, in other words, you know, if you only look at the sort of economic added value of the factory um, in, the, in, the, in the short term, you may fail to consider what the long-term non-monetary cost is to lots of other people. And it very well may be that even though there is some value added by that next development project, uh, we, as the people of God, uh, and just we as citizens, but we as the people of God in particular, at some point have to say, we need to be content with what we have. More is not always better. Lust, Matthew Henry says, craves everything and is content with nothing. And we need to be careful uh, lest we become as conservatives so um, pro-business that we always say yes to the development and the growth and the productivity and the prosperity without due consideration for when it's time to be content because of the consequences otherwise. We need to be careful, in other words, as the people of God, that in our lust, we don't join the masses in craving everything but being content with nothing. And so, uh, hopefully, this gives you something at least to, uh, that, that you can wrap your mind around or hands around, at least those four points, even if you don't know how to make sense of them right now. I, I would understand if that's the case, but at least you can write them down and know what they are because um, very often you'll find, and if you go back and if you were to look at the two political party platforms, on the issue of the environment, you'll find one that says, uh, this is a crisis, we have no time to waste, we need to act immediately and dramatically. 
to take care of, right? To steward. Uh, to, I don't know that they use that term, but, um, but we would use that term. And another that says, uh, we don't really, if we don't do anything, we're, we're really still fine for a while. And um, we don't, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to enact any policies that are going to stifle the economy. And, and cause us to lose jobs. It, it actually uh, uses that language. I didn't make that up. That's characterizing the positions pretty well. And my suggestion here this morning is that neither of those is sufficient. And that what we as Christians, uh, I wish would do, it is my prayer and hope, is that we, we would reclaim the issue. That we would take the lead again in the conversation and say this needs to be framed differently the people of God ought to be the ones making a moral argument if there's a moral argument to be made surrounding any of these issues. And we ought to be the ones to give people a more holistic, comprehensive view um, that says, yes, we are concerned about stewarding and taking care of God's creation, but we're also concerned with being productive with it and not apologizing for that. Um, but recognizing all the good that it does with a specific interest in the good that it does for hum human beings. But all of that checked and balanced by, regulated by contentment that says, thank you, God, for all that you've given us and all that you've given us the capacity to produce and will not lust for what we don't have, we'll be thankful for what we do have. Well, let's pray. Well, Father, as I prayed earlier, I, I, just, I just ask that you would take this and by your grace and power, cause it to be helpful in ways that we need it to be helpful as your people. Lord, we do want to be faithful and obedient. We want to embrace as true all that you've said is true. We want to embrace as good all that you have said is good. And we want to be on this earth what you have charged us with being as your image bearers who are here to manifest your glory, to represent your interest, and to be responsible for things on your behalf. Would you teach us how to do all of that for your glory and our good always in Jesus' name. Amen.